Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. If you were uh, with us last week, you know that we unpacked uh, three different interpretations of Genesis chapter 1. And from the feedback that we got last week, uh, for some of you who live in that tension week in and week out, uh, you found it incredibly helpful. And uh, we also recognize that there are others of you who don't necessarily live in that tension week in and week out and uh, potentially couldn't care less what Genesis 1 and 2 say. But one of the reasons we wanted to uh, take our time through these chapters that Genesis 1 and 2 are the basis of a lot of the questions that the culture is asking. And people outside of the church who are approaching Scripture. And so we want to be literate in these topics and at least know where some of the questions and controversies lie. We want to know what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say when we open up to chapters 1 and 2. Because that's where a lot of the questions are coming from. I'm going to argue that there are countless people in our culture who are drawn to Jesus, but actually get hung up on chapters 1 and 2 of the scriptures. What do these chapters mean? Can I trust them? If I can't trust them, then how can I trust all of the countless chapters that... Uh, follow. What am I reading when I open up to Genesis chapters 1 and 2? And what is God communicating through it? At the very least, we want to be literate in these topics. And so as we engage with the first couple of chapters, uh, we don't want to be afraid of asking the tough questions, of uh, wading into some of the nuances and controversies of biblical interpretation. But At the same time, uh, we don't want to get wrapped around the axle, so to speak, or we don't want to be stuck wrestling with a whole bunch of questions that aren't actually relevant to what God is trying to communicate. And so uh, that's the balance we're trying to strike as we uh, turn our attention now to Adam and Eve. Uh, What are the questions? What are the controversies? But more importantly, uh, what is their significance in the biblical storyline? We pick up in Genesis 1, verse 26. Uh, This occurs in the middle of day 6 from the seven-day sequence we studied last week. In our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit in it. They will be yours for food. 
And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all of the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And we have been asking questions ever since. As we ponder the biblical accounts of Adam and Eve, people inside and outside of the church are asking all sorts of questions. Are Adam and Eve the first humans? Are they the only humans when they're created? Were they literally made from the dust of the earth and a rib? What about evolution and pre-human ancestors? Does every human being descend from Adam and Eve? And what is their significance in Scripture? While the origins of the universe and the age of the earth make for meaningful debates. The origins of humanity make for a far more heated discussion. How old is the earth? Uh, What are the seven days of Genesis 1 describing? That's all fun and games compared to humanity. The origins of humanity become the bedrock for all of the theological statements of meaning and purpose which follow. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, last week you messed with my view of Genesis 1. Please don't mess with my view of Adam and Eve. Leave it alone. I'm going to argue that it's the text itself which raises all sorts of questions in our minds. And you may object uh, to, to last week and this week and say, hey, why, why are you making Genesis so complicated? And my response would be that the text itself is incredibly rich and complicated. Here are some of the questions that people have as they read the text. It says humanity was created on day six. Does that include Adam and Eve? Was it only Adam and Eve? The text isn't clear. After the seven days are finished, chapter two starts with, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. 
Is this a retelling of day six, or is it something different? And where did the other people come from in Genesis chapter four? So, for example, for those of you who are familiar with these chapters, Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Uh, Both are mentioned clearly in the text. And uh, unfortunately, Cain uh, kills Abel, so he's gone. And the next thing you read about is Cain being married. Did Cain marry his sister? It just mentions he and Abel, and then all of a sudden, he's married. And then you continue to read through the text, and right after Cain kills Abel, God tells him, hey, you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain's response is, Oh no, that's terrible, because if anyone finds me, they will kill me. Which again, if you're just reading through the text, kind of begs the question, who is it that he's afraid of? Who are these other people that he thinks might kill him? And then you read a few more lines down through the text, and it says that Cain and his wife and their son uh, go to help build a city. And to be fair, I don't know how many people it took to constitute a city in the ancient world, uh, but I'm guessing it was more than three. <laughs> a thousand? Ten thousand? I don't know, the text doesn't say, but all of these people came from somewhere. And so as you read through the text, many people are left with these questions about Adam and Eve and uh, who are these other people? Okay, what if God created more people on day six alongside Adam and Eve? What if he put Adam and Eve in the garden and then created more people outside of the garden? And it kind of goes on and on. You have all these different theories and interpretations surrounding these two people. And then curiously, the rest of the Old Testament doesn't really say anything about Adam and Eve at all. It doesn't really mention them again. And it's not until you get into the New Testament that you start receiving more information about Adam and Eve. Here are a few snapshots. From the book of Acts, we're told that from one man, God made all the nations. 1 Corinthians says the first man, Adam, became a living being. And right here in Genesis chapter 3, it says Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And so you start putting these pieces together from the New Testament. And the picture that seems to emerge is that Adam and Eve were two real people who lived in a real time, in a real place. It seems from the text that they were the first human beings, and presumably, at the time they're created, the only human beings, but we're told that everyone alive today can trace their lineage back to this single couple, to Adam and Eve. And while I'm reluctant, to factor any scientific findings into biblical interpretation, in part because scientific theories are constantly changing over time, 
I can't help but notice uh, that the current scientific theories uh, concerning humanity are theorizing, based on genetic studies, uh, that all of humanity can trace their roots back to one mitochondrial Eve and one Y-chromosomal Adam. Or said another way, one male and one female. Take anyone's genetics anywhere alive in the world today, they trace back to the same place. I found that intriguing. But in either case, it seems that Adam and Eve were the first humans, and it appears that in the beginning, they were the only humans based on the text that we have. And therefore, based on the biblical evidence, it would appear as if chapter 1 is telling the story of creation from God's perspective, and chapter 2 is going to retell the story of creation, but this time from a human perspective. And if you have more questions on sort of the technical side of human origins and, and some of the questions we've already raised from the text, we're happy to continue that conversation through the Q&A podcast or in person or whatever will be most helpful. Uh, but having acknowledged some of the technical questions that exist, we now arrive at the most important question of all. What is the biblical significance of Adam and Eve? Why are they important? Why should we care? And, and we're quick to say, especially in our kind of Western scientific culture, we're quick to answer that question by saying, well, they were the first humans, and all of us descended from them. They are the original human ancestors. And that all sounds great, but I'm going to argue that the true significance of Adam and Eve actually goes well beyond biology and genetics and becomes a matter of representation. And this actually becomes important when we ponder the significance of Jesus. So stick with me for just a few minutes because some of this is going to sound a little technical, but eventually it will uh, pay off. And, and the difference, there's something here that I want us to grasp. And, and it starts with the difference between a prototype and an archetype. And if you've never heard those words before, uh, that's okay. But this is the difference. A prototype is the first of something. It's uh, the, the first model off the line, so to speak, that will serve as a, a, a model for all the rest. So the example I listed here is BMW. If BMW comes out with a new car, then the very first car off the production line is what they would call the prototype. Okay, this is it. This is the finished product. This is what every other car should look like. It's physically the first car. It will be the model for all the rest, the others should be like it. So when we point to the biological significance of Adam and Eve, we're talking about genetics and we're looking to them as prototypes. They're special because they were the first. Are you with me there? That's a prototype. But the biblical authors aren't nearly as interested in biology as they are in representation. And that becomes a matter of archetypes. 
And an archetype is something great, not less than a prototype, but something greater than a prototype. It's more significant. An archetype represents and embodies the whole. So were Adam and Eve the first human beings in production? It appears from the text that they were. But more importantly, they represented and embodied all of humanity. And in this sense, even if you could prove to me from the scriptures that God created other humans before or alongside or after Adam and Eve, and you say, yeah, it's right here in the text, let me show you. Awesome, great. They were created on day six or day eight or whatever the case was. It actually wouldn't change the importance of Adam and Eve. Because Adam and Eve were our representatives. And as a result, we became so deeply identified with them that we share in their actions. An archetype, with an archetype, all are represented in the one and all are said to have participated in the acts of the one. Humanity is so intimately connected as one group before God, with Adam and Eve as our collective representatives, that we will all rise or fall together. As a collective group, with them representing us, we will all be declared guilty or innocent together. And this makes perfect sense if you were raised in an honor-shame culture which we were not. Uh, but if you were raised in an honor-shame culture, it would make sense to you because in many of those cultures, they're very family-oriented and you will have one person who's the head of the family. And if the head of the family in, 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 is the recipient of shame, does something shameful, everyone in the family experiences the shame. And on the flip side, if the head of a family in an honor-shame culture is raised and seated to a place of honor, then everyone else in the family is honored along with them. And we don't really live in that world, and so it's a little difficult for us to grasp. We are far more individualistic. But in our culture, the, the closest example I can think of off the top of my head would be thinking about uh, electing representatives. Okay, so within the last 48 hours, uh, most of you received a ballot in the mail, which you can use uh, to elect representatives to Congress. We can choose someone to uh, make choices on our behalf, on behalf of the group. And so if the elected officials should choose to go to war, then all of America is at war, including you, including me, regardless of whether or not we voted. Because there were representatives in place that now made a choice that affects the whole. And, and that's an imperfect analogy. It doesn't go far enough in capturing archetypes, but you begin to see the significance of Adam and Eve. It's more than biology. It's actually about representation. Here are some of the things that the scriptures say about Adam. It says, Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people 
because all sinned. And again, many died by the trespasses of the one man. One trespass resulted in condemnation for who? All people. By the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Do you see how representational this is? There's a sense in which we were there in the garden, wrapped up with Adam and the tree and the choice. You were born into a race of people who collectively rebelled against God with Adam and Eve at the head. They embodied all of us and we share in their condemnation. So much so that the scriptures say that we are born in Adam. His disobedience is reckoned to our account. We are made sinners by Adam's sin. We are condemned by his guilt. And thus you are in Adam. And when you are in Adam, there is no amount of righteous action that can make you righteous before God. Do you realize that? That that if you're in Adam, you can load up your schedule full of good deeds and religious activity, and still you will be stuck in your sin. No amount of good deeds can save you. They will not make you righteous in God's sight. So long as you are in Adam, your attempts at righteousness remain filthy rags. They do not take you out of Adam. Are you with me? And the reason that all of this becomes important is that Jesus comes on the scene as the second Adam, or or what the scriptures call the final Adam. And if we don't understand our tie to the first Adam, then we won't fully grasp our tie to Jesus. Because he comes on the scene as the perfect, obedient human being that Adam could never be. He never had to repent. He never had to ask God for forgiveness. He lived day in and day out, fully walking in the pleasure of the Father, and he only did what was righteous and good in God's eyes. He walked in complete trust and obedience. And no other human being has ever done that. And having lived a perfect life for us, he then died the perfect death for us. And and he conquered death in resurrection For us. And now, all those who give their lives to Jesus are said to be in Christ. Huh. That's interesting. Before you were in Adam and tied to his legacy, and now you are in Christ and tied to his legacy. And if you understand 
how hopeless your situation was in Adam, then you will begin to understand what a glorious life you now have in Christ. Because in the same way that you shared in Adam's representational failure, you now share in Christ's representational success. They are mere images of one another. You shared in, in Adam's failure and his guilt and his shame and his family inheritance and condemnation and death. So too, you now share in Christ's representational perfection, in his honor and glory, in his family inheritance, which is resurrection and life. And, and we say that his righteousness now belongs to you as well. Have you ever heard someone say that when God looks at you, as a Christian, he sees Jesus. Have you ever heard that before? I've always struggled with that one. Like, seriously? Like, is Jesus just standing so close that he, like, blocks the view? Like, clearly God doesn't see me, like, and in, in, in my junk and my failure. How, what, what do you mean he only, can he see me at all? And I've always had trouble grasping that idea. And, and this is where it becomes important because all of us hear the accusing voice of the enemy. The scriptures say he never stops accusing, day and night. That accusing voice will always be that pointed finger, that voice of condemnation and despair. And if I'm honest, most days, for me, it tends to hit pretty hard. Most days, I, I give an ear to that voice. And I end up feeling sinful and inadequate and unworthy and on the edge of disqualification. Surely I'm not good enough. Surely I need to try harder. Surely I have to do something else to make up for my sin. And on those days, I feel fear and regret and inadequacy and anxiety, and I feel condemned. And I'm sure that none of you have ever experienced any of those It's probably just me. I'm pretty messed up. Why God asked me to be a pastor, I have no idea. But on those days, as I struggle to understand how I could have Christ's righteousness, I have to start with Adam. Under his representational failure, for the first 20 years of my life, when I was in Adam, there was nothing I could do to make myself righteous in God's eyes. Nothing. Everything that I did 
was, I was still in Adam. It was still polluted and tarnished by sin. And I could jump on the treadmill of good deeds and even religious activity and let it spin and spin and spin and spin until I'd worked myself half to death and still I've got nowhere. I was not any more righteous in God's eyes than I was before I started. I was still in Adam when I got off the treadmill. I was, I was guilty. I was stuck. But if that's true, then the opposite is true in Christ. I am now under his representation. I am in Christ, and therefore there is nothing I could do to remove myself from his righteousness. You cannot add to the righteousness of Jesus that's a banner over your life. You can do nothing to add to it. And, and I think we start to grasp that. But what is even more shocking is that you can do nothing to detract from it. Regardless of how you feel, regardless as if you're having a good day or a bad day, it, it makes no difference. There is nothing I could do to add or detract from that righteousness. And so on the days that I sin, which is pretty much all of them, it actually doesn't change the way that God sees me. And, and I could actually sin up and down for the rest of my life, and it will not change the fact that I'm in Christ. I'm completely justified in his eyes. I am free. Your condemnation flowed from your, represent, or from your relationship with Adam. It flowed out of that relationship. But now, your righteousness flows out of your relationship with Christ. As stuck as you were in condemnation, that's how soaked you now are in Righteousness, as contaminated as you were in Adam, now you are completely purified in Christ. Nothing can touch you. And yet, if we're being honest, many of us spend most of our days constantly battling this sense of disqualification and guilt, the burdens of unworthiness and inadequacy are not foreign to us. Many of us struggle, if only subconsciously, wondering, am I actually acceptable in God's eyes? Can I actually stand before him with a clear conscience? Most days, I wrestle with that question. And that accusing voice hits harder than I'd like to admit. And my gut impulse under that accusation is to try harder and do better and try to prove myself. I have to prove myself to myself and to God and, and to those around me. Or better yet, I'll come up with a long list of lame excuses to justify my sin. Oh, I hear the accusation, but here, I have five really good reasons. 
why, why I did that. It wasn't really that bad. Anyone else would have done the same. And yet, under all of those scenarios, the condemnation persists. At the end of the day, the only way that I can overcome the accusing finger of the enemy is to rest in the righteousness of Christ. God says, you are righteous. God says, you are justified. Who is it that condemns? Whispering in your ear. Are you listening to that voice? Do you believe that voice? Because the scriptures say that you are now under Christ's kingship and representation. And that Adam was a pattern for the Christ who was to come. When you were in Adam, all of his unrighteousness flowed to you. You were embodied and identified in what he did. All humanity was said to have participated in the acts of the one. But now that you are in Christ, his righteousness flows to you. You are embodied and identified in what Christ did. And you are said to have participated in the act of the one. If you had done all of the things that Jesus did, if you personally had lived a perfect life and died a perfect death and been resurrected from the dead, God would not look at you any differently than he does right now. You could do all of those things. It would not change the way that he views you. Why? Because you are in Christ. You have changed representational families. And what's true of the head of the family is true of you. You could not be any more closely identified with Jesus and what he did. And as a result, you are free. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned. It's not about your performance. It doesn't matter if you came in here this morning feeling on top of the world or, or, or hanging by a thread. Nothing that you could do or feel or say or experience could possibly change your standing before God. It is absolutely unshakable. As unshakable as it was in Adam, that's how unshakable it is in Christ. And you don't have to prove yourself, and you don't have to listen to condemnation. And if no good deed could make you more righteous in Adam, then no amount of sin can detract from your righteousness in Christ. And if that sounds too good to be true, and potentially even dangerous, then you are beginning to grasp the gospel. As you were dead in Adam, so now you are alive in Christ.
And I need that. I, I need that reminder when I wake up on, on Monday mornings. I, I need that. When temptation hits, when accusation hits, the only way that I've discovered to survive and even thrive is to remind myself of who I am. That I'm in Christ. That, that what I have in Him, that that righteousness is absolutely unshakable. I have changed families from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves. And there's nothing I can do to be ejected from that family. I cannot do anything to detract from His righteousness. Let's pray. Jesus, we turn our hearts and minds to you now, recognizing that just as we were born human uh, to, in, in this line of Adam and Eve under their representational failure, that so now, by simply placing our, our, our hope and faith and trust in you, by turning our lives over to you, you've actually done something deep in the core of who we are. You, you've actually changed who we are. You've, you've placed us in a new family, under a new representational head. And therefore, what's true of Jesus is true of us. And God, we, we need you to work in our hearts to bring that truth to life. Because most days I wake up feeling a lot more like Adam than I do like Jesus. And, and yet we trust in what you've done. And, and we trust in who you say we are. And so we look to you now, Jesus, as our perfect representative as the one who lived the perfect life and died the perfect death, who was resurrected from the dead and who now shares all of who you are with us. And I pray, God, that as we dwell on these truths, that you would silence the voice of the enemy, that you would silence the voice of condemnation in this place, and that it would be your voice that we hear. It would be you that we encounter as we celebrate what you've done, and who you are. We look to you now, Jesus, in your name. Amen.